Welcome. You are listening to the Audio Information Network of Colorado. This recording is intended to be used solely by individuals with barriers to print. This program is intended for a print-impaired audience and is brought to you by the Georgia Radio Reading Service, GARS. Hello, I'm Paula Ferguson, and this is the AARP Magazine. I will begin reading from the February-March 2023 edition of the AARP Magazine. And on our front cover of this edition, we have a photo inset of Lily Tomlin, Jane Fonda, Sally Field, and Rita Moreno. The caption is Forever Fans on Friendship, Fun, and Why They're Crushing on Guess Who? Then there's a small photo inset, a stamp-like photo inset, Tom Brady, plus our exclusive interview. Other articles in this issue, Sex in Your 60s, Yes, 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 It Can Still Be Great. Cash, A User's Guide, Where to Keep It, How to Spend It, Earn High Interest, Fight Inflation, Bonus, Are You Rich? Check Your Junk Drawer, Travel, Cruise Vacations, Back Big and Better Than Ever, Health, Eight Worst Habits for Your Blood Pressure, Law and Order, Sam Waterston. Those are just some of the captions on the front cover. First, we have up front the A-list, Eight Life Lessons from Roma Downey. Number one, grow from grief. I lost my mother when I was 10 and my father in my early 20s. That created a strong empathy for people who have suffered and a desire to reach out with kindness. Number two, don't postpone joy. My mother never got a chance to use her wedding china. It was locked in a little cabinet. When the troubles in Northern Ireland escalated, a tank rumbled down the street and all the china broke. Live like every day is your last. Number three, believe in fate. I was looking for a job when the touched by an angel roll turned up. As a person of faith, I found it such a privilege to be the messenger to 25 million people a week. Number four, find a family. My co-star, Della Reese, ended up being the mother I had been looking for. She taught me so much, and I love her and miss her dearly. She said, Baby, I knew God brought you into my life because you need a mom. I just didn't know he brought you into my life because I needed a baby girl. Number five, drink tea. Every event in my life, from the best friend saying I'm getting married or I'm pregnant to my father's dying, has got a cup of tea connected to it. And there's a quote from her, Everywhere you turn, the world seems divided. I want to encourage people to reach out and help a brother, help a sister. Number six, lend a hand. Helping others was my father's answer to everything. When we came home and flung ourselves onto the couch and said, I'm bored, his answer would be, well, get up and go do something for somebody else. Number seven, keep learning. My husband, the producer Mark Burnett, is learning how to drive a boat. We don't have a boat nor are we likely to get one. But we're both of the mind it's important to keep open to the idea of learning. Number eight, light the way. When we went on a mission for Operation Smile in Jordan, it was hard for our young kids to see children with cleft conditions. But ultimately, they realized we can make a difference. They all came back and did fundraising in their schools. And that's beautiful. It's by Natasha Stoinoff. Roma Downey, 62, is an actor, producer, and author. Her latest book, Be an Angel, Devotions to Inspire and Encourage Love, 
and light along the way appears in February. And that is up front the A-list eight life lessons from Roma Downey. Next and up front we have Bean Counter. We asked Chef Charlie Layton of Basic Kitchen in Charleston, South Carolina for his favorite dry bean choices, plus other varieties and tips to consider. And their photo insets of several dishes. One is the secret ingredient at Zuki Beans. There's a photo inset of that, and they appear to be little cakes. Great Northern Beans Thickened Soups Sauces. There's a bowl of northern beans with carrots and corn, parsley, and other vegetables mixed in. Chili Your Way Kidney Beans, Black Pinto Beans. And there's a bowl of chili beans and black pinto beans with some cheese and lettuce and other vegetables in there as well. Fava Bean Falafel, Lima Bean Succotash Yum. There's two separate dishes, the fava bean falafel and the lima bean succotash. And here's our bean counter. Black, native to the Americas. Flavor, earthy, mushroom-like. Best uses, served with rice added to soups and bulked up veggie burgers. Cooking tip, before cooking, most dry beans should be soaked in water for at least four hours, then drained. Great Northern, native to the Americas, flavor, mild, nutty. Best uses, classic baked beans added to soups or stews. Cooking tip, to skip the soak, use a multi-cooker. Also consider other white beans, include navy beans and cannellini, a.k.a. white kidney beans. Fava Broad, native to Mediterranean and Middle East. Flavor, creamy mouthfeel, earthy with a hint of sweetness. Best uses, Egyptian-style falafel, hummus, salads. Cooking tip, add baking soda to soaking water to loosen skins. Remove skins from water after cooking. Chickpea garbanzo, native to Mediterranean and Middle East. Flavor, buttery. Best uses, hummus, marinated. Reserve canned liquid cooking water for plant-based egg alternative. Cooking tip, for hummus, soak for 12 hours with baking soda. Boil without salt. Lima butter bean, native to the Americas. Flavor, lightly sweet and mild. Best uses, Scott Olio, preserved and seasoned olive oil, salads, veggie burgers. Cooking tip, simmer fresh young beans unsoaked in salted water. Also consider Giganta, popular in Greek cuisine. Kidney, native to the Americas. Flavor, slightly sweeter than white beans, but very tender. Best uses, Caribbean-style rice and peas, chili. Cooking tips. Want to use canned beans? Try to find no-salt-added versions. Also consider red beans, popular in Creole dishes. Pinto, native to the Americas. Flavor, creamy, slightly nutty, and smooth in texture. Best uses, chili, various beans, and rice dishes. Cooking tip. Skim any scum off cooking water. Also consider black-eyed peas. Yes, they are beans. Anasazi and cranberry. Adzuki, native to Asia. Flavor, noticeably sweet, nutty. Best uses, salads, sweet applications such as plant-based brownies. Cooking tip, there's no need to soak beforehand. These cook up quickly, simmer with a 1 to 4 ratio of beans to water. 
and that's by Kelsey Ogletree. The photographs of the beans are by Johnny Autry. And that is Bean Counter. We asked Chef Charlie Layton of Basic Kitchen in Charleston, South Carolina, for his favorite dry bean choices, plus other varieties and tips to consider. Our next article, Stars on Film, a rock photographer dishes about some of her famous subjects. For half a century, Lynn Goldsmith has photographed some of the biggest names in music for magazines, including Newsweek, Rolling Stone, and People. Her latest book, Music in the 80s, offers a look at a decade that produced countless new stars and also gave new life to those who had hit it big in prior decades. Here are a few of Goldsmith's behind-the-scenes story. First is of Keith Richards. One of my favorite pictures in the book is a double-page spread of him. We were walking down 36th Street in New York, and this older woman obviously thought he might be somebody because I was taking his picture. But she had no idea. He's just a gentleman and a lovely person. It's a photo inset of Keith Richards and the older woman walking beside him. The Go-Go's. The Go-Go's were new, and they were a bunch of girls all helping each other with their makeup. And then I'd gone to see them perform, and I thought that they were the worst band I'd ever heard. People get better as they continue to play. U2 wasn't very good in the beginning either. And there's certainly a photo inset of the Go-Go's. There's five of them. Bob Marley. There's a picture of him looking really happy. At that time, he had cancer. It was inspiring to see him not only go out there and perform, but the way that he was with the people. He was just open and positive and didn't show the pain that he must have been going through. And there's a photo inset of Bob Marley with a big smile. Chrissy Hindi. She didn't want any makeup in those days, particularly before MTV really took hold and people cared more about what they looked like on film. You often had to break the barrier of artists who felt that what you were doing wasn't authentic. And there's a photo inset of Chrissy Hende on her guitar. And those are by Whitney Matheson. Then we have Piano Men. Here are these artists who command the keys. Platinum-selling pianist George Winston, 73, released Night, his 16th solo album last year. Here he names some players he loves. John Cleary, though he's from London, Cleary, 60, has made himself into one of the greatest New Orleans pianists. I hear a bit of a Dr. John influence and a bit of Professor Longhair. He's an amazing, driving, boogie-woogie player. Tom McDermott. He's one of the ambassadors of New Orleans music and piano, but this 65-year-old is also very steeped in classic ragtime, Brazilian music, and more. Christopher Tavener, this young pianist from North Carolina, had focused on classical but has moved to other areas, including variations on movie themes. It will be fascinating and wonderful to see where he goes. And that's by Craig Rosen. My favorite movie music. This Oscar season, we asked some famous musicians to pick film soundtracks that are worthy of top billing. First up is The Man Who Knew Too Much, 1956, Mike Love of the Beach Boys. This album features the song, Que Sera Sera, Whatever Will Be Will Be, sung by Doris Day. She was a fantastic singer, and it's a beautiful song. It's so relatable. It's a nice piece of advice. Beyond the Valley of the Dolls, 1970, Gerald V. Casali of DeVoe. It's amazing that somebody put all their talent into this kitschy stuff, but it's perfectly produced and well played. It's so bad that it's good, and that is a category that DeVoe always respected. 
O brother, where art thou? 2000, Art Alexicus of Everclear, a perfect storm of T-Bone Burnett, who produced the soundtrack with filmmakers the Cohen Brothers. It's one of the most complete visions of a record I've heard. It's just stunning. CR. That is my favorite movie music. Prior to that, Piano Men. And prior to that, Stars on Film. All on Upfront and Listen. Then we have Upfront Go. Festivals for the rest of us. Skip the standard music fest or art fair. For a unique experience, make your way to one of these wild events. UFO Festival, Roswell, New Mexico, June 30th through July 2nd. UFOfestival.com, founded 1995. Legend has it that an alien craft crashed in this community in 1947, and so it has been dubbed the UFO capital of the world. Enjoy laser shows, sci-fi movies, a night sky watch, and talks by ufologists. Dress up for the costume contest. Then we have Wisconsin State Cow Chip Throw. Prairie de Sac, Wisconsin, September 1st and 2nd. Wiscowchip.com, founded 1975. The event features a craft fair, a parade with bovine floats, and the Cow Chip Throw, in which contestants hurl dried pieces of dung. Avon Heritage Duck Tape Festival, Avon, Ohio, June 15th through 17th. Duckbrand.com slash duck dash tape dash festival. Founded 2004, stick around for this extravaganza that showcases duct tape in various forms, sculptures, crafts, fashions, parade floats, and more. This community is the home of the duck brand of tape and the self-proclaimed duct tape capital of the world. Oz Stravaganza, Chittenango, New York, June 2nd through 4th. Oz-Stravaganza.com Founded 1978, follow the Yellow Brick Road to the birthplace of author L. Frank Baum to see landmarks from his life and memorabilia in the All Things Oz Museum. This is the longest-running Wizard of Oz festival. Humongous Fungus Fest. Crystal Falls, Michigan, August 25th through 26th. Facebook.com slash Humongous Fungus Fest. Founded 1992, one of the world's oldest living organisms, dating back to B.C., is a 440-ton honey mushroom that sprawls over 173 acres. Events include a mushroom forage and cook-off, and that's by Veronica Stoddart. Then we have the search for the perfect route. We all tend to have our favorite GPS mapping phone app. Plug into your dashboard display using Apple CarPlay or Android Auto. How for compare? Google Maps. The app can deliver gas prices by station and help find parking. Maps are downloadable, so they're available offline where cellular reception is spotty. Waze, that's W-A-Z-E, features include gas prices and parking help. Waze also uses driver input to deliver alerts on speed checks, road hazards, and construction zones. Apple Maps. Navigation is precise and includes info like which lane to use when approaching intersections or highway interchanges. Maps also has strong privacy features that prevent even Apple from knowing your route or location history. MapQuest. This app connects with MapQuest Travel. 
the company's travel guide site through which you can make hotel and restaurant reservations. Parking help and gas prices are available. MapQuest can also estimate fuel costs for your trip. That's by David S. Cohen, The Search for the Perfect Route. Preceded by festivals for the rest of us. Skip the standard music fest or art fair for a unique experience. Make your way to one of these wild events. And then we have a side article packed with features. Does your suitcase do these things? Electricity. Some new bags come with removable USB chargers that can power up your mobile phone. Organization. Some luggage has shelving that pops up when you open it. Other pieces can function as a tabletop or workstation. Tracking. Some suitcases have a built-in GPS tracker so you can find out on a phone app if it's nearby or tied up in transit. Weight monitoring. Some bags have a luggage scale that's built into the handle by Maisie Fernandez. And that's packed with features. Does your suitcase do these things? Continuing in Upfront Live, Collection Be Gone, How to Dispose of an Inherited Museum of Stuff. A collection isn't clutter to the collector, that is, but to an heir or potential heir, that cabinet or artfully curated and often costly curiosities, be they figurines, watches, first edition books, or war relics, can be unwanted stuff. Some advice on disposing of it. Recorded. The first step is to free everyone of guilt, says Matt Paxton, a downsizing expert and author of Keep the Memories, Lose the Stuff. Heirs have no moral obligation to maintain someone else's collection. Whether you're the collector or an inheritor, give yourself permission to let it go, he says. If you want to acknowledge the collection for posterity, keep one cherished piece. Photograph the rest of the collection or film yourself telling its story. Then move on. Sell it. The ultimate question is this. Should you sell the collection as a whole or individually by piece? The answer depends on which is more important to you, money or time. Selling by individual piece will likely net you more profit. Other collectors may pay good money to fill holes in their collections, says Ed Kendall of Five Cats Antiques. But if you want to rid yourself of the collection quickly, sell it all as a lot. To assess the collection's value, research similar items to see what they sold for on marketplace websites, Kendall says. If you opt to sell it yourself, eBay and Etsy are popular for collectors. You can also find collectors' clubs online or contract with a dealer or an auctioneer who will take a cut of the sales. Donated. Collections are rarely worth what you think, Paxton says, so you might want to avoid the mental fatigue of selling. An alternative is to donate the collection to a charity or find an organization that would appreciate the items, such as a library or museum. That's by Naima Rowe. Then we have what to do with a kitchen desk. Many houses were built with a permanent desk in the kitchen. Today, these spaces are often cluttered catch-alls. We ask interior designers to reimagine the kitchen desk to make it more practical for our 21st century lives. One, stylish storage. Ditch the chair and place an oversized basket in the footwell and another on the desktop, says designer Michael Del Piero, who has offices in Chicago and New York's Hamptons. This creates the look of a shelving unit. Entertaining station. 
Make it a bar, say New York-based designers Richard Kolaf and Edward McCann. Clear the desktop and arrange spirits, mixers, glassware, and an ice bucket on a tray. Kolaf adds, put a wine rack or a wine fridge in the space below. Reading Nook. Tear out the desk, says Dallas designer Shannon Bowers. Position furniture such as an armchair and a lamp where it had been. Marie Prowler, Houston. And that is what to do with a kitchen desk. And then we have another small article, my favorite tool. Linda Hayslett, 45, is the founder of LH Designs and has worked for clients such as Sandra O oh and Charlize Theron. I carry a measuring tape in my purse. At a flea market, I noticed items that were perfect for a project. I shared photos with my client and measured them on the spot. Another client said that since arming herself with a measuring tape, she's staved off impulse purchases. The numbers don't lie. NR, and that is my favorite tool that completes our upfront live collection be gone. My favorite tool, a kitchen desk. As we continue in upfront, tech, ask the tech guru. Question, I have several laptops I no longer use. I'd like to donate or responsibly dispose of them. How can I wipe them clean of all personal data? Is there a way to restore them to factory settings like a phone or tablet? Lynn M. Jason R. Rich, author of AARP's Tech How-To Books Answers. It is important to remove all personal data from your computer before getting rid of it. After backing up any needed files onto an external hard drive or in the cloud, do this. Windows 11 PC. Click on the Windows button and select Settings. Click on System. Click on Recovery. Click on Reset PC. Choose Remove Everything. Turn on the Data. Erasure option. Windows 10 PC, click on the Windows button and select Settings. Choose the Update and Security option, click on Recovery. From below the Reset This PC heading, select Get Started. Choose Remove Everything, turn on Data Erasure. For both of the above, the process will delete personal files and installed apps and restore the original settings. This could take up to two hours. Mac OS Ventura. Click on the Apple icon. From System Settings, go to the General option from the sidebar. Click on Transfer or Reset. Select Erase All Content and Settings. Mac OS Monterey. Click on the Apple icon. Choose System Preferences. Select Erase All Content and Settings. For both of the above, then take these steps. When prompted, Log into the Mac using your credentials. When you see the message, you are about to erase all content and settings from this Mac, choose Erase All Content and Settings. Have a tech struggle? Send your question to personaltech at aarp.org. And it might be selected for a future issue of AARP, the magazine. Then we have Tracking Fido's Fitness. Electronic collars keep tabs on your dog's activity. Any dog owner knows that their pet can get pretty obsessive about daily walks. Now you can keep track of every step they take. Just as people have fitness bands and watches to monitor their activity, dogs can have smart collars that do roughly the same thing. Deliver daily data to a phone app with information such as number of steps taken, distance walked, and amount of time spent sleeping. According to one such device, my 12-year-old Boxweller, 
Milo snoozes nearly 14 hours a day. My sleep-deprived wife expressed her envy. Among the smart collars on the market are five from Barking Labs, Whistle Health and Halo 2 Plus. Dog trainer Janine Pierce of Southern California told me these collars have an effect similar to that of fitness bands for people and can get pets to move more. I think a dog activity tracker is fun and useful, she says. It helps keep me motivated to give my own dog exercise. And that's by Craig Rosen. Tracking Fido's Fitness electronic collars keep tabs on your dog's activity. Then we have Diagnose Your Phone Battery. If your smartphone is running out of juice faster than it used to, you might not need a new one. A less expensive fix could be to replace the battery. Yes, this can be done even though the phone is sealed shut. How to check your battery's health. On an iPhone, open settings, then tap on battery, and then battery health and charging. Note the percentage next to maximum capacity. That indicates how the battery has degraded over time. If the number is below 80%, it should be replaced. On a Samsung Galaxy, a popular line of Android phones, launch settings, tap on battery and device care, then tap on diagnostics and then battery status. Samsung will either show its status as normal or show a message that it's ready for replacement. How to replace the battery? Take your phone to an authorized service provider. If it is no longer under warranty, replacement battery service for an iPhone can cost $69. Android costs vary. How to keep your phone functioning? Many consumers today are holding on to their phones for years. Consumer intelligence research partners reported that as of September, only 39% of phone buyers had owned their previous phone for less than two years, while 29% had their previous phone for three years or longer. That's by Edward C. Begg. And that concludes Diagnosia Phone Battery, as well as Tracking Fido's Fitness and Ask the Tech Guru, all under Upfront Tech. Next in Upfront, Read. Could it be murder? A clutch from some masters of suspense and mystery. Reviews, Every Man a King by Walter Mosley. The author, best known for his Easy Rollins series, hits the mark in the sequel to 2018's Down the River Unto the Sea. It again features unflappable investigator Joe King Oliver, who accepts a dangerous assignment to determine the guilt of a white nationalist jailed for murder. February 21st. 48 Clues into the Disappearance of My Sister by Joyce Carol Oates. Talk about an unreliable narrator. This gripping story is told through the eyes of a troubled woman, Gigi, whose beautiful older sister, Marguerite, has gone missing. We learn more about Gigi's disturbed mind as she unspools clues to her sister's fate. March 14th, I Will Find You by Harlan Coben. A classic Coben novel, fast-paced and twisty. His latest features, David Burroughs, a broken man serving a life sentence for the murder of his son, which he vehemently denies. When he learns the boy may be alive, he plots a daring escape from prison to find the truth. March 14th, Living Well, the good life lesson from the world's longest scientific study of happiness by Robert Waldinger, M.D. and Mark Schultz, Ph.D., the famed Harvard study of adult development followed a group of people through the decades, offering the authors rich data to conclude that the indisputable key to a good life is good relationships, which, they write, keep us healthier and happier, period. Doing well, the real work on the mastery of mastery by Adam Gopnik. 
The New Yorker writer asks, how do you highly skilled people, whether bread bakers or driving instructors, become so good at what they do? After spending time with some pros, he concludes that more than mastery, what really moves and stirs us is accomplishment. March 14th, Christina Ianzito. And the tiny slice, we are not sociopaths. We don't murder on our days off any more than a thoracic surgeon will cut your ribcage open for kicks. We have standards. From Killers, A Certain Age by Deanna Rayborn. We have more new thrillers of note, The House at the End of the World by Dean Coots. How I'll Kill You by Ren Stefano, March 21st. Locust Lane by Stefan Emadon. Red Queen by Juan Gomez Gerardo, March 14th. And Murder Book, a novel by Thomas Berry. And that concludes today's edition of the AARP Magazine. This has been Paula Ferguson for the Georgia Radio Reading Service. Thank you for listening to GARS. Your regularly scheduled program is not available at this time. Please enjoy this special broadcast on AINC. This program is intended for a print-impaired audience and is brought to you by Mind's Eye. Welcome to the Blindness and Disability News Hour from Mind's Eye Radio. This program covers the week of March 5th, 2023. Thanks very much for joining us this week. Hope everybody is well and comfortable and having a good week so far. We've got lots of interesting stories for you, so let's get right to work. Our first story comes from blindnewworld.org. That's a blog site operated by the Perkins School for the Blind. Living with CVI, what is the definition of blindness? Tina Juzi Caruso is a photographer, athlete, and advocate living with CVI, a brain-based blindness. Cortical or cerebral vision impairment, or CVI, is a brain-based blindness that presents in different ways. Some people with CVI also have ocular conditions, including nystagmus, nearsightedness, myopia, lazy eye or amblyopia, cross eyes, strombismus, ONA, optic nerve atrophy, or a combination. Others might have 20-20 vision, but because the eye's connection to the brain isn't there, the brain can't properly process the images it's seeing. Unlike folks with eye-based conditions like retinitis pigmentosa, Usher syndrome, or Stargardt disease, their eyes are fine, but they're brain blind. How do you explain people that you're brain blind? How do you get people to understand that brain-based blindness is a form of blindness? Day-to-day life as an adult with CVI. I live with CVI as well as other learning disabilities, including dyslexia. When I fall on the blindness, pardon me, where I fall on the blindness scale is functional blind. To me, this means I'm between sighted and blind at the same time which at times can be confusing. Sometimes I can see, and my brain can decipher and process what I'm looking at using compensatory skills. Other times my eyes see, but my brain refuses to decipher and process what I'm looking at. I also struggle every day with facial blindness. In general, it's hard for me to process where I am and what I'm doing and who I am with, since people and the world around me are blobs of color. It's very disorienting to experience the world like this. 
Questions run through my head every time I meet new people. I also ask myself, do I tell them my whole diagnosis story? My CVI story. Did you know that CVI is the leading cause of childhood blindness in the United States? I always knew I couldn't see, but I didn't know why. Some people, like teachers and eye doctors, thought it was because of my dyslexia. Finally, when I was 19, I got the diagnosis. We still don't know why I have CVI since I was adopted from a Chinese orphanage at 11 months old. But the one thing I do know is that CVI has given me a community of parents with children like me, as well as other adults like me. I have learned so much, and this community has given me purpose and voice to advocate for change with CVI. And I am passionate about spreading awareness about CVI. And the author, Tina Zhu Z. Caruso, is currently majoring in photography at Massachusetts College of Art and Design. A lot of her work revolves around exploring how it feels to see with CVI and how things look to her with CVI. Tina is also a runner who tether runs with guides. She's proud to be an Achilles International athlete and loves running with their Boston chapter. Achilles International is an organization that promotes people with disabilities to get moving through walking, running, or rolling. You can follow Tina's work and other adventures being blindsided in Boston on Instagram and TikTok. For our next article in this week's edition of the Blindness and Disability News Hour, let's turn to visionaware.org, a site operated by the American Printing House for the Blind. Face-to-face with expectations, social interactions as non-visual participants. And this is written by Elizabeth Sammons. As anyone who is blind or low vision knows, we experience an entire spectrum of interactions in the sighted world, from professional to patronizing, from helpful to humiliating. Among my earliest and most humorous memories as a blind child, my mother would say to restaurant servers in her most innocent voice, quote, well, I don't know what she wants to order. Why don't you just ask her, unquote. How empowering my mother's behavior was, paving my way towards becoming a self-confident, non-visual adult living in a sighted world. This article will explore ways we can respond when interactions go off course. Particularly if you are new to blindness or low vision, your world might feel like a landslide in social status, shifting from subject to object, from active to passive, from leader to follower. It may also seem like your needs or presence is inconvenient to others. However, it's possible to steer conversations to take charge and even help others learn along the way. And please note, this may involve gently but firmly persuading your parents, children, or friends to let you handle situations for yourself, or, if you are sighted, encouraging your non-visual loved one to speak up more without your direct involvement. In my lifetime of being low vision, I've been fortunate to meet many amazing strangers who have provided me with information, help, or even safety in unfamiliar situations. However, along the way, I've also encountered an entire spectrum of less-than-helpful interactions. 
While these may overlap, each one demands a unique strategy. I offer stories and examples below from several fellow APH vision-aware peers and my life as we've made our way through stores, airports, restaurants, and other public venues and dealt with strangers. Interaction types include ignorance, fear or anxiety, misguided curiosity, sometimes wrapped in good intentions, overzealous offers, overbearing pity, and avoidance and or hostility. Day to day, we all interact with people different than ourselves, and we can expect a wide range of initial reactions to our special needs. Before analyzing specific responses to our blindness, it's important to own up to a few facts. First, most customer service staff and other strangers have little or no experience dealing directly with people who cannot see, and if they have experience, it is often guided by misconceptions. Communications, including eye contact, print signs, and symbols, or following other visual cues, are a major part of Western society. Communicating without these cues may feel like the carpet has been pulled out from under one. In situations where someone is expected to offer help or services, our non-visual world is, at best, a surprise and, at worst, a major shock or inconvenience. Recognizing this helps us to be a little more patient as we try to make the social or logistical situation easier to navigate for both parties. To mitigate our natural anger or frustration when dealing with strangers who don't know us or understand our needs, let's recognize ourselves as living in a strange land but not built with the assumption we're there. First, ignorance. As noted above, the public has few general interactions with the blindness world, particularly interactions of an empowering nature. While most people are aware of braille elevator buttons, white canes, service dogs, or the inconvenience of navigating in the dark, these concepts seldom lead to a real understanding of our everyday needs in the non-visual world. Responses can range from the idiotic, such as what Maribel told us, asking in preparation for a flight if we can toilet ourselves, to the presumptive, such as our conversation partner yelling at us to be heard, or pushing us or pulling us like a cart. Jeannie told us, quote, More than once I've been talking on the phone, and the fact that I'm blind comes up. You're blind? You don't sound blind. Her reaction was priceless as she countered, How does blind sound? Sometimes our capable actions can counter the assumptions people hold about us. Like Jeannie, we can also use clever or humorous questions to help people recognize their lack of perception. At other times, we can walk away from these situations and just shrug or laugh. Once we're over our shock or dismay, we can remind ourselves they make a good story to tell later on. Fear or anxiety. Most people, including those in service sectors, want to do their job or at least not get caught doing the wrong thing. However, the meaning of the right thing may swing wildly when the ordinary expectations of visual communication are lacking. Audrey told us, quote, Before I was a seasoned traveler, I decided to fly alone to visit a friend. I requested an airport escort to my gate. As this large and in-charge person sidled up to me, I immediately had misgivings. 
She began to grab and drag me along, announcing loudly, quote, Excuse me, coming through with a blind lady, unquote. When we arrived at the gate, she walked me up to the desk and said, quote, I have a blind lady here. What do you want me to do with her? I felt like a sack of potatoes that needed to be unloaded, unquote. It's humiliating to get caught up in receiving service on someone else's terms. On one hand, we realize that not speaking up may reinforce negative behaviors or social expectations that bar progress in the blindness community overall. On the other hand, voicing our dissatisfaction can create its own kind of exhaustion and frustration that could escalate certain undesirable situations. What to do? Obviously, in cases of emergency or urgency, we need to avoid disorder, not becoming oppositional, and I've tried at times to use humor, such as saying, quote, It's just my eyes that don't work. My legs are fine, and it feels great to walk after a three-hour flight, unquote. A little humor can also go a long way in dissolving the fear or suppositions of others, especially in unfamiliar environments. My tagline, when I know I need to ask for directions, specifics on price tags, or the location of the end of lines, or a free chair is, quote, Excuse me. May I borrow your eyes for a few seconds? Unquote. Of course, you may never know what reaction you'll get, but what have you got to lose? And then there's misguided curiosity, sometimes well-intentioned. I learned the hard way, as a kid, that, like it or not, other people were watching me most of the time. Some people worry about us, no matter what they're doing. Jeannie told us, quote, Several years ago, while navigating through a hotel with my cane, very sure of my route, a lady exclaimed, You're going the wrong way! To which I asked, Do you know where I'm going? She said nothing more. Audrey also told us, I joined my local gym and was learning to navigate the space with my white cane. After coming for several weeks, a woman approached me and said, I have been watching you for some time now. Do you really need that cane? because it see, looks like you can see just fine. I took a deep breath and explained that my vision was hard to understand, and yes, I needed the cane to keep myself sta- safe. She seemed skeptical, so I asked her, Do you really think I would fake such a thing all for the joy of using this nifty cane? Unquote. Both Audrey and Jeannie responded to questions with other questions, which showed people why their assumptions were misguided. This often works well in cases of normal or just misguided curiosity. However, when inquiries get out of hand or over-personal, I've sometimes fought fire with fire. People ranging from waiters to fellow pedestrians have asked me, How much can you see? Or, What happened to you? Would you like it if I asked you how much you earn or about your medical history I've countered? This usually stops the inappropriate questioner in their tracks. And let's think about overzealous offers. Some individuals desire to get on a figurative white horse and save somebody. While this is often well-intentioned, results can range from embarrassing, at best, to disastrous. Occasionally, we may even need to factor in safety considerations as we listen to our, to our gut about how someone is preferring what they perceive as help. What is it about airports that bring out the best and the worst in people? 
Cindy told us, quote, The airport assistant, who was my guide, kept grabbing my cane and trying to lead me through the terminal and gate by my white cane. I explained, Please let go of my cane, sir. It needs to stay on the floor. I can simply follow you. However, he did it two more times when he seemed to think I was veering off. Judging from his heavy accent during the interactions, he did not seem very comfortable with the English language. Each time I stopped walking and again explained, I tried to keep my tone polite and state my needs clearly, while he also letting him know in simple terms that his actions felt very rude. Unquote. In cases like this, no matter what we say, we can't influence interactions to go the way we want. Issues of language and culture definitely play significant roles in how people view others. When we have limited control over what someone understands when we speak, it's complicated at best. Cindy's keeping her cool and persisting in trying, even in this situation, speak volumes about advocacy and her own initiative. Like Cindy, I've encountered plenty of folks assuming my inability to do things, from crossing a street to signing my name. Here, I'll show you, I respond at times. One of my father's best gifts to me was a t-shirt I still have and occasionally wear when I suspect the going will get tough. It states, quote, let me show you how I can't, unquote. Go ahead and quote that one anytime. And next, let's talk about overbearing pity. Some people take in disability with a nearly overwhelming emotional reaction. To fear response above sharpens into, quote, if I couldn't see, I would need someone to do everything for me, unquote. Cindy told us, quote, at my local post office, I was alone and mailing several packages. After locating the door and walking in, someone came up to me and tried to take the packages out of my hand. I immediately stopped and asked, excuse me, do you work here? And she said, oh, yes, and then grabbed my arm and started pulling me to the counter. I again stopped and asked her to please let go and that I could just follow her. I could tell by her tone that she was surprised. During the mailing process, I made sure that she could see how independent I was in accessing info on my phone and checking out with smart pay, unquote. It's often a great idea, as Cindy did, simply to illustrate our abilities and capabilities. This allows us to maximize our independence while also showing others what we're capable of. The next time, this service provider might step it down a notch. I've been in emotional situations when corner preachers or other strangers have asked to pray for me. I assume that they want to heal me or show their support. Yes, I reply, could you please pray about, and then I name, name a family member who is ill, a problem on my mind, or a situation in our world. People whose experience doesn't include much disability interaction tend to think it's the dominating concern or problem in our lives. While this may be true sometimes, helping them understand our greater experience or purpose can give them a second take. Avoidance or Hostility while these are two different reactions, I put them together here owing to their relative infrequency and similar responses needed. Mary told us, quote, 
When I need to interact with people at a counter, store, doctor's office, airport check-in, etc., they tend to want to address the person who can make eye contact. Since I'm totally blind, I can't, although I try to look at them as if I can see. To avoiding to avoid having them talk to my sighted companion, I sometimes say, you can talk directly to me, I can here. But if that doesn't work, my companion will look away or walk away, thus forcing the person at the counter to talk to me. What a great way to make someone own up and face you. Note to sighted readers who have blind loved ones, be ready to step back or even walk away, encouraging greater self-confidence and control in the world of the person you love. Audrey told us about a less humorous situation. Quote, when it was time to move the lab to, to the lab to have my blood drawn, the lab tech jumped out of her seat and ran from the area yelling, why is that dog in here? No, I can't be around a dog, unquote. I tried to explain that she was a well-trained and gentle dog, but she refused to come back and draw my blood. I left the practice, and I told the doctor why, unquote. It's important to realize that there are alternatives, and we need to be victims of fear, prejudice, or hostility. Exploring these alternatives, such as another doctor or sales place, may be inconvenient, but compared to the emotional impact of the, the above interactions, isn't it empowering? And in conclusion, non-visual people living in a visual world should expect to face a wide range of reactions, most of which are manageable if we accept that they usually arise from a normal amount of ignorance or fear. With a little analysis, patience, humor, and advocacy, we can often interact with a degree of grace in social and customer service environments. While we aren't responsible for the reactions of others, we can do much to control interactions from our side. It's sometimes even possible to turn awkward moments into learning opportunities or positive interactions. Some major tips include, first, we can expect the unexpected in service interactions. We usually know a lot more about the sighted world than the sighted conversation partner knows about our world. Next, we should be prepared to explain how someone can help us without assuming that person can read our minds or know our needs. As a sighted person, stepping back and allowing your non-visual loved one to take charge will move mountains in fostering that person's empowerment. Next, a little humor can go a long way in lowering anxiety or getting a point across. A counter-question to an inappropriate question can illustrate our point better than almost any tirade. It's helpful to keep a few taglines in mind. Illustrating our capabilities by doing something well can counteract people's low expectations or assumptions of what we can't do. And next, when we can't alter the emotional tone or the service provided, we can still keep our cool and consider going to an authority figure. And finally, when faced with genuine hostility or avoidance, we can either force interaction or walk away the wiser. Sharon told us, quote, I traveled from one city to another by plane not long ago. The airline on the, in the first city insisted I use a wheelchair. I indicated that blind people can walk and do not need wheelchairs. I was told that's how they move from one place to another. The first time, I went along with it, 
The second time, in the destination city, I would not get in the wheelchair, and I walked along as the woman pushed the empty wheelchair. The third time, in the original city, I ran into a manager who was very familiar with ADA and said he'd take care of the situation, unquote. Whether we decide, as Sharon did, to go to an authority figure or speak directly with someone providing service, it's important to explain clearly what we need and what the problem is. If our gut tells us that people have good intentions, keeping a positive emotional tone from our side will let us communicate more easily. Sometimes I've thanked a harried customer service staff member for taking time out, or in extreme stress I've said, quote, Please take your time. I know you have a tough job. Unquote. Our own patientness and openness usually get reflected back to us as strangers recognize our goodwill, as well as our capacity to adapt and interact. Many things in life require cooperation between at least two parties, and situations involving blindness are no exception. Being prepared mentally ahead of time is the best we can do both for ourselves and for others, to create better interactions, not just in the moment, but for times to come. As we continue with this week's edition of the Blindness and Disability News Hour, let us pay a visit to the American Council of the Blind at acb.org. From their Braille Forum for March of 2023, she puts a new spin on Get Up and Get Moving. And this is written by Kathy Farina. Megan Hale, a member of the chapter district of ACB in New York, is a young woman with a purpose. She feels that young blind women should be able to participate in sports if they choose. And recently, Megan informed our chapter about completing an Ironman triathlon in Lake Placid, New York in July of 2022. And we were obviously intrigued. Triathlon is an endurance sport consisting of three different disciplines, swimming, cycling, and running. Participants must complete timed sessions of all three sports in a given amount of time. The Ironman consists of a 2.4-mile swim, followed by a 112-mile bike race, and then a 26-mile run. The total distance is 140 miles, which must be completed in 17 hours. Megan completed her Ironman in 16 hours, 58 minutes, and one second. And how did Megan get to this point? This sport is not for the faint of heart. Megan has Lieber congenital amaurosis, an inherited eye condition causing loss of peripheral vision and difficulty seeing details. Her school district was hesitant. The Center for People with Disabilities Beyond Vision program provides peer support groups for people who are visually impaired or blind. Connect with members of your community, create new relationships, learn new skills and techniques, listen to guest speakers, and learn how to connect with local resources. Beyond Vision events are hosted monthly on the third Wednesday of every month at 1 p.m. and are accessed online through Google Meet. Upcoming topics by month include... March, Blind Shell Classic 2. March, Blind Shell Classic 2. March, Blind Shell Classic 2. To attend an event, you may RSVP by emailing beyondvision at cpwd.org 
or by calling 720-526-2804. Again, that is 720-526-2804. Once registered, you will receive a link or call-in information to join through your computer, tablet, or phone. Space is limited, so please RSVP as soon as possible. If you are unable to make the sessions, but you want to get connected with a skills trainer, request an accommodation, or find more information, please contact Estefania Corral by emailing estefania at cpwd.org or by calling 720-526-2804. That number again is 720-526-2804. This podcast is presented by the Centers for Disease Control and Prevention, CDC, safer, healthier people. This podcast is taken from the NDEP campaign, Control Your Diabetes for Life. Winter is a season of holiday celebrations, football playoffs, and other occasions when family and friends get together over meals and snacks. For people with diabetes, it can be especially challenging to stick to a meal plan. But you don't need to sacrifice all of your favorite foods. The key is to make a variety of healthy food choices and limit portion sizes. Here are some tips to help you eat healthy during gatherings throughout the winter season. Eat a healthy snack. Eating a healthy snack prior to leaving home can prevent overeating at a party. Plan ahead. Check out the party food options before you begin eating and make a mental note of what and how much you will eat. Your food choices should fit into your meal plan. Bring a dish. Share your healthy dish with family and friends. Move away from the buffet. Fix your plate, then step away from a table of finger foods to avoid grazing while chatting. Savor the flavor. Eating slowly reduces your chances of overeating. Drink water. Water is a healthy, no-calorie beverage. Drink plenty of it. Trim it down. Eat smaller portions of food. Trim off extra skin and fat from meat. Party hard. Focus on family, friends, and activities rather than food. And if you are the cook and your goal is to serve healthy feasts to your guests, follow these tips. Bake it, broil it, grill it. Consider healthy alternatives to traditional meats. Choose skinless meat or poultry and avoid fried dishes. Increase fiber. Serve whole grain breads, peas, and beans as part of your meals. Easy on the toppings. Lighten your recipes by using reduced fat or fat-free mayonnaise, butter, sour cream, or salad dressing. Focus on fruits. Serve fresh fruit instead of ice cream, cake, or pie. Change high-fat, high-calorie desserts by replacing whole milk or whipped cream with 1% or non-fat milk. Serve low-calorie beverages. Offer your guests sparkling water or diet beverages. Remember, we're all in this together. Support your family and friends by encouraging them to eat healthy during the winter months and throughout the year. For free materials on managing diabetes, visit www.ndep.nih.gov or call the National Diabetes Education Program at one 800 438 5383. To access the most accurate and relevant health information that affects you, your family, and your community, 
please visit www.cdc.gov. AINC programming is made possible by funds from the Boulder County and Denver Regional Council of Governments Area Agencies on Aging.